Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, listeners. It's Friday, November 18th. I am very tired, candidly. It's been a long week. Also, I had a COVID booster plus flu shot two days ago, and I've never felt worse in my life. (laughs) I'm sure I will be fine, but this combination really hit me hard for some reason. I did want to just quickly mention that we have an event coming up in January that's going to be amazing. Sam Altman is coming with his brothers, Max and Jack. I couldn't be more thrilled. I'm also very excited to say that Alfred Lynn of Sequoia Capital has agreed to join us and to talk a little bit about Sequoia Capital's doomed investment in FTX, which is obviously the big story of the month and possibly 2023. We are still programming the event, but you will want to snap up a seat soon. If you haven't already, we are running out of room. You can find out more information on Eventbrite. Just look up Strictly VC Insider Evening and or January 12th. Okay, that's it. We're gonna jump into a few news stories and then we will see you next week. And guys, have a happy Thanksgiving. Hang on, here comes the news. The situation at FTX is awful, with the distinct possibility that hundreds of thousands of customers have lost billions of dollars of precious capital. But Samuel Bankman-Fried's one saving grace was that he didn't seem to be in it for the money. A mop-haired techie who favored dressing in t-shirts and shorts, SBF came across in articles as a somewhat frazzled graduate student trying to reinvent the world for the better. That has changed. First, Bankman-Fried confessed to a Vox reporter on Thursday that his advocacy for better crypto regulation in Washington was, quote, just PR. Then, lawyers for FTX alleged that Bankman-Fried was working with the government of the Bahamas to transfer FTX assets into accounts outside the control of management, even after the company had filed for bankruptcy in Delaware last week. And now today, a Wall Street Journal report about an FTX financing round last year raises new questions about FTX's governance. In October 2021, FTX raised $420.69 million. Yes, the choice of digits was deliberate. And as part of this transaction, Bankman-Fried cashed out $300 million of his FTX stock, a fact that has not been previously reported. According to the journal, Bankman-Fried told investors at the time it was a partial reimbursement for the $2.1 billion he spent to buy out Binance's stake in FTX, a few months earlier. The journal article points out that it is usually a bad sign when a founder sells stock in a secondary offering. However, this new information also raises some troubling questions. Given it's not clear where Bankman-Fried got the rest of the money, some $1.3 billion, one wonders what role FTX's capital played in all of this. Did Bankman-Fried use $1.3 billion in FTX capital to purchase the Binance shares? Could this be the $1.2 billion related party receivable listed on FDX's balance sheet as of December 31st? And if so much FDX capital was involved, why didn't FDX purchase these shares instead of SBF? Surely it would have been in the company's strategic interest to do so, given its business momentum and $25 plus billion valuation. New FDX CEO John J. Ray may have cleaned up Enron, but he will certainly have his work cut out for him in trying to figure out what Bankman-Fried did with all this money. 
When Peter Close last updated his LinkedIn profile, he listed his role as layoff survivor at Twitter. Yet Close, a senior software engineer who joined the company in the spring of 2020, is now gone too. He quit yesterday, dispassionately explaining last night on Twitter that he decided to leave, not to hobble Twitter or because he hates its new owner, Elon Musk, but simply because he no longer had any incentive to stay. It now appears that a significant percentage of Close colleagues felt the same way. While they weren't part of the 50% of Twitter employees who lost their jobs at the end of October in an unprecedented layoff at the social media outfit, as its 3,700 remaining staffers, they were presented with an ultimatum this week by Musk. The choice that he presented to them? Commit to a new, quote, extremely hardcore Twitter, where they would be, quote, working long hours at high intensity, or leave the company with three months of severance pay. A Hobson's choice, essentially. Musk was clearly hoping that some percentage of Twitter's remaining employees, who are expensive and who he had no say in hiring, would opt to leave the company. In fact, Musk reportedly told investors he might slash upwards of 75% of staff before taking over the company. So whether he's in shock right now, having cut into the muscle of the company, or is celebrating the success of his plan, is only something Musk in his inner circle knows. Certainly, the numbers are stunning to nearly everyone else. The New York Times reported earlier today that based on its sources' internal estimates, at least 1,200 full-time employees just handed in their figurative key cards. Close, in a long series of tweets about his own departure, suggests the number could even be higher than that. Talking about his own org, he wrote that more than 85% of his colleagues were laid off in October and that a stunning 80% of those who remained opted out yesterday. What strikes us reading Close's explanation about why he left isn't that so many people walked out with him. It's almost more astonishing that 100% of employees didn't leave, raising questions about who Musk thought would stick around. If he only wanted those employees with no choice but to kill themselves for now, that seems like a flawed business strategy. Otherwise, if Musk was hoping to hold on to anyone else, one assumes a carrot would have been offered. Instead, as Close wrote yesterday, there were only sticks and lots of them. He wrote, for example, that he left because he, quote, no longer knew what I was staying for. Previously, I was staying for the people, the vision, and of course, the money. All of those were radically changed or uncertain. He continued on to say he left because he would have been on call constantly with little support for an indeterminate amount of time. He also said he left because he saw no upside to Musk's brash management style, which he said he could have tolerated longer if he wasn't operating wholly in the dark. Instead, by close telling, Musk still hasn't shared a vision for the platform with employees. Quote, no five-year plan like a Tesla, wrote Close, nothing more than what anyone can see on Twitter. It allegedly is coming for those who stayed, but the ask was blind faith and required signing away the severance offer before seeing it. Pure loyalty test. There has been so little communication from the top that rumors and speculation have run rampant, Close suggested. Among staffers' apparent concerns is that not only will Twitter become subscription-based, but that adult content could become a core component of those offerings. Last but not least, wrote Close, there was no retention plan for those that stayed. No clear upside for sticking it through the storm on the horizon. Just trust us style verbal promises. By yesterday, Close said he was living in a world where his friends are gone, the vision is murky, and there is a storm coming and no financial upside. 
He went on to ask rhetorically, what would you do? Would you sacrifice time with your kids over the holidays for vague assurances and the opportunity to make a rich person richer, or would you take the out? The obvious answer is you would take the out, which Musk surely expected, right? One would think? Who knows? The question now is if he can build back with who's left before the whole thing caves in. Certainly, there are a lot of Twitter users who hope he pulls it off. Up next, the latest news about Elizabeth Holmes and what's really going on at Drive Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you a military veteran looking to get your startup business up and running with the support of the best of the best advisors and investors? Join hundreds of military veteran entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and early-stage operators at the Military Veteran Startup Conference, hosted by Context Ventures on February 2nd and 3rd, 2023, in San Francisco. You can learn more and register today at milvetstartups.com. That's M-I-L-V-E-T startups.com. Military veterans make fantastic founders and investors. Come build your network at the densest gathering of military veteran talent in the early stage ecosystem. The event is open to everyone, military veterans, veteran spouses, and civilians. Once again, visit milvetstartups.com. That's M-I-L-V-E-T startups.com to learn more and register today. Former Theranos founder and CEO Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced today to more than 11 years in prison, two years more than a probation officer had recommended, but nine years less than the maximum amount specified in federal guidelines. Holmes's lawyers had asked for a sentence of home confinement and community service and no more than 18 months in prison, while prosecutors were seeking a 15-year prison sentence to send a message to potential wrongdoers. Holmes does not have to report to prison for five months, and her lawyers will almost certainly appeal the sentence. But if her lawyers are unsuccessful, her 135-month prison term will be a tough road to hoe. Holmes and her partner have a young son, and she is currently pregnant. In a statement to the court, Holmes said, I stand before you taking responsibility for Theranos. Still, Holmes did not explicitly acknowledge the fraud that she had perpetrated, nor the lives of Theranos patients that she had put at risk. Before sentencing, Judge Edward Davila talked about letters he had received from venture capitalists in support of Holmes. Although these VCs reminded Davila that failure in Silicon Valley was not uncommon, they didn't endorse failure by fraud, Judge Davila said. Those letter writers did not condone misrepresentation and manipulation. Davila explained that he didn't give Holmes the maximum sentence because he didn't believe her main objective was to enrich herself. The tragedy in this case is that Ms. Holmes is brilliant, he concluded. Drive Capital was founded by two former Sequoia Capital partners who were looking to start anew in the Midwest. But investors in the Columbus, Ohio-based firm have had a bumpy ride of late, and according to our sources, they aren't enjoying it. 
It's a dramatic turn for Drive, which announced $1 billion in capital commitments back in June. That's a healthy amount for a 10-year-old firm whose mission it is to invest nearly everywhere in the U.S. outside of Silicon Valley. In fact, in June, the firm, co-founded by veteran VCs Mark Kwame and Chris Olson, seemed to be riding high with a couple of apparent wins and new funds that brought Drive's assets under management to more than $2 billion. Yet, dating back to September, soon after we talked on this podcast with Olson about VCs who've been doubling back to California, we heard rumblings about a rift, along with separate plans that Kwame was making. Then came the announcement last month that the team was splitting up. At first, the story was that Kwame, who logged more than twice as many years at Sequoia than Olson, was transferring to, quote, partner emeritus status because, as he told the regional outlet Columbus Business First, 10 years and four funding cycles was longer than he originally planned to lead Drive Capital, which likely came as news to Drive's investors. This week, the other shoe dropped. Columbus Business First reported that Kwame, who races cars, is not zipping off to semi-retirement, but instead talking with potential backers about a new fund, the Ohio Fund, which will apparently invest in multiple asset classes, including other funds, public stocks, private companies in Ohio, and infrastructure. The idea is to, quote, focus on the future economic vitality of Ohio, said an unnamed source to the outlet, who we suspect is Kwame, but that's between us. Shh. Olson now says he's surprised by this development. We obtained a letter that Drive sent out to its limited partners tonight that reads, Dear limited partner, this week an article was published indicating that our partner emeritus Mark Kwame is launching a new investment fund. All of us at Drive were surprised by this news as we are sure you were too. We will not send you a note each time a new article about Mark is published, but we feel that in the spirit of being a good partner, it's appropriate to provide you with a transparent update about this situation and our relationship with Mark. After the article was published, we spoke with Mark and learned that the prospect of him raising a new fund was leaked to a journalist from an unknown source. According to Mark, he has not yet determined what he's going to do next. Raising a new fund is something he's considering, along with other options in public service and personal endeavors. We have a formal separation agreement with Mark that prevents him from starting a competitive firm or fund to drive. Please know that this was a heavily negotiated agreement to ensure that it substantially protects drive, our limited partner's interests, and everything we are building toward at drive. Again, we do not intend to communicate with you each time a new article is written about Mark, but in this instance, we thought it was appropriate to provide clarification. End note, essentially. Olson declined to talk with us slash me for this story. We reached out to Kwame and also did not receive a response, but the whole thing is complicated to say the least. According to our sources, part of the split traces to a relationship between Olson and Yasmin Lacalade, who was Drive's COO for nearly seven years before leaving the firm in April to launch her own investment outfit. Asked about this earlier, a Drive spokesman downplayed any tensions that may have arisen from a romantic relationship in the office between the two, writing, yes, you heard right, and that Chris and Yaz are in a relationship that's been public knowledge for some time, and he said no comments beyond that. 
like a lot of venture outfits right now, Drive also finds its portfolio in rougher shape than a year or two ago. One of Drive's biggest exits to date has been that of Root Insurance, a now seven-year-old Columbus, Ohio-based insurance company that specializes in automotive coverage and that staged a traditional IPO in November of 2020. The shares performed initially really well, but they've tanked since, currently priced at roughly $7 each after a reverse stock split. That's down from $486 per share the day the company went public. Olson, for what it's worth, stepped off the board in November of last year. The other big star of Drive's portfolio currently, Olive AI, is trying to overcome its own challenges. The Columbus-based healthcare automation startup, founded in 2012, has long framed its extensive history of pivots, more than 30 to date, as an inspirational story of trying, then trying again. Olive was rewarded by investors for its willingness to shift gears, too. It has raised a staggering $902 million over the years and said last year that it was valued at $4 billion. But the outfit was never all that it appeared to be, according to a series of damning Axios pieces. And by September, the wheels were fast loosening. Most notably, the company's chief financial officer and chief product officer were abruptly fired, following out the door numerous other C-level executives who left this fall, including the company's president, a senior director of operations, its EVP of operations, and its SVP of payer product strategy. Olive AI has since said it will sell a portion of its products and services to a company called Rotera, but... That company was built out of Olive's own venture studio, so we're not sure what that means. Limited partners aren't happy about these collective developments, but as far as we're aware, they have not talked about taking action, and it seems unlikely that they will. First, we've been covering venture capital for a very long time, and it is exceedingly rare for LPs to organize against a venture firm to which they've committed capital, and it's only slightly less rare for VCs to extend LPs the courtesy of scaling back their commitments. LPs, too, might expect that Olson will land on his feet. He does have 16 years of venture investing experience and a staff of roughly 20 to support him at Drive. Not last, there is not a lot of interest in creating headaches for Kwame, who borders on VC royalty. His father was a partner at Kleiner Perkins. His first wife is the daughter of another famed VC, former Sequoia Capital partner Pierre Lamond. Kwame is also very connected in Ohio after being lured there originally by his longtime friend, John Kasich, who you may know was the governor at one point. Kwame came to take an economic development job there, and he may have political aspirations of his own. Indeed, one regional investor recently told Business Insider that Kwame may be launching a fund meant to bolster Ohio's economy as groundwork for a future campaign. Thanks for listening, everybody, and special thanks to the Military Veteran Startup Conference hosted by Context Ventures on February 2nd and 3rd. Remember to check out millvetstartups.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.